Welcome to this Refreshing Law podcast. I'm Anna Denton-Jones and in today's session I'm going to be talking about settlement agreements. Uh, For those of you who've been around a while you might um, still sometimes slip up and call them compromise agreements which is their former name. In this session I'm going to be talking about what the documents are, why we use them, some of the common things that we might find in them, But I'm also going to be talking about bits and pieces that I've picked up over the years in terms of the number of settlement agreements that I've been involved in negotiating from either side and some of the changes and things that are happening. I would encourage you, if you are involved in drafting a settlement agreement for your organisation, to not just wheel out the last one that you used without giving it any thought. Um, It is something that we need to take care um, to tailor to the particular circumstances that we are talking about. So what is a settlement agreement? Well, at the sort of uh, lowest level, it's simply a, a written agreement between the employer and the employee or oftentimes the former employee but we're going to talk about the statutory regime that um, lays over that written agreement and this might help you to understand why certain things are in the documents that you may see from time to time. When are they used? Well they're usually used on the termination of employment so that might be settling claims that have already been issued or threatened via ACAS but often it's an employer offering a package to an employee to prevent those claims from emerging but don't forget that it is possible to use a settlement agreement if employment is still ongoing so for example somebody might have Um, complained about equal pay during their employment or some other form of discrimination complaint and we agree to resolve that Uh, but the underlying employment is still carrying on as per normal. From the employer's perspective the advantage often of entering into one of these agreements is certainty certainty of knowing they're not going to face legal claims. There are advantages often to settling something early, saving the time and the expense that we all know comes with litigation, saving the need to have witnesses come out of the organisation and have to attend tribunal, which is always disruptive. It saves potential adverse publicity as well. And it gives the employer the opportunity to control certain things within the terms of the document. Often that might be around what the employee does next uh, and things like confidentiality. I do sometimes find that employers are entering into these agreements perhaps too readily. A CBI survey recently evidenced that employers are generally settling a lot of claims that they would otherwise win. Now, I get that often there's a commercial decision to be made there. And these days, the costs of going to an employment tribunal, when you're often talking about a two or three day hearing or even longer, um, 
from an economic perspective, it might be cheaper to settle. But their um, their point was that employers are, are, are often um, inclined to settle things where actually they would win. I do see settlement agreements, for example, being used um, perhaps where there are redundancies um, and the employer would have every chance of winning a claim um, and it might not actually be necessary to use a settlement agreement. So it is worth asking yourself whether or not we are overusing them. From the employee's perspective, the employee is going to have the certainty again of knowing where they are, um, avoiding having to go through a process that could be very stressful for them. There's always a risk of losing if you go down the employment tribunal road. They have the opportunity to have some input into the provisions that are agreed. For example, they may, may well want a reference agreeing and of course the employment tribunal doesn't have any power to order a reference. There are other things that can be dealt with such as pension arrangements and of course they're going to get potentially money up front in a lot faster uh, order than they might otherwise. In terms of what claims can be compromised there's probably three categories that we're talking about here. The first um, category will be contractual claims. Now you don't actually need a settlement agreement to, to um, deal with a contractual claim you could just do that in a letter so if you were only ever worried about a contractual issue you know there is no need to have a settlement agreement you can do it via a letter as long as there is valuable consideration um, something from the employer to the employee statutory claims however have to be um, settled via a valid settlement agreement um, and I'll go on to talk to you about what makes it a valid agreement in a second. The only other route you can settle um, statutory claims would be an ACAS COP3 agreement, um, which is ACAS's formula for settling claims. The third category um, of claims that might be settled via a settlement agreement would be common law claims. I'm thinking of things like negligence, personal injury claims, uh, those sorts of things. In terms of the legislation, it's section 203 of the Employment Rights Act 1996 that governs um, settlement agreements. We've probably had legislation since the 90s on this. Um, the feeling I think prior to the legislation was that sometimes employees were signing away uh, their rights without really realising what they were signing up to, which is why the legislation uh, makes it clear that it's only binding if the employee has taken legal advice, which we'll come on to in a second. In terms of the ingredients, if you like, that have to go into a settlement agreement, number one, it's got to be written down. Number two, it's got to relate to a particular complaint. We'll come on to that in a second. As I just mentioned, number three, the employee has to have received independent legal advice. 
and before the independent advisor has to have been covered by a valid insurance policy at the time of advising the employee. Number five, the agreement has to identify the advisor. So that's why you'll always see them being named in the agreement, not just their firm name, the actual identity of the advisor. So in my case, my name, Anna Denton-Jones. Number six, the agreement has to state that the conditions regulating compromise agreements in the Employment Rights Act have been satisfied. So you will often see a paragraph that refers to a number of pieces of legislation and says that the parties agree that the ingredients necessary in these different sections of different legislation um, have been satisfied. That's what that clause is all about. It's all about ticking the right boxes to say that this is a lawful settlement agreement. In terms of who can be an independent legal advisor, there are four different types. Um, so qualified lawyers, barristers, solicitor would be the first type. Trade union officials who have been certified by their union as trained to give advice on settlement agreements will be the second type. Those working in an advice centre certified as competent or authorised to do so, so that might be um, a citizen's advice bureau worker. And then others that have been specified in legislation is the fourth category. So fellows of the Institute of Legal Executives would come under that category. What is not included on that list will be HR consultants, non-practicing solicitors, non-practicing barristers. Um, there was some discussion a few years ago whether or not to extend the legislation to HR and uh, for whatever reason that never happened. It's for the employer to satisfy themselves that the person advising the employee is properly qualified to act as an irrelevant independent advisor. So just bear that in mind. Sometimes you might just need to do a bit of a Google search to understand who the person advising the employee is. Um, sometimes employees don't understand the need for them to get independent legal advice. I have had individuals return signed agreements with no advisor certificate signed. Um, they haven't understood the need for them to go and get that advice and that basically the the agreement will be void unless that has happened. In terms of the advisor's certificate that's usually attached as a schedule to the settlement agreement, um, that's there as a way of evidencing for the employer that um, that advice has been given but it isn't actually a statutory requirement that there is an advisor certificate if that makes sense sometimes I see settlement agreements where the employer has made the solicitor an actual party to the document if you think about the beginning of a legal document, you normally have 
it outlined at the beginning who the parties to the document are. You'll often see number one, the employer, number two, the employee. I have seen people go as far as saying number three, the advisor. That isn't um, a legal requirement. And most solicitors would um, not wish to become a party to the document um, because potentially if there's litigation about that documentation it could put them in a difficult position regarding things like the advice that they've given to their particular client. Um, so steer clear of doing that. I do see some agreements that are very out of date in terms of how they reference the legal advisor. The House of Lords became the Supreme Court, so nowadays the official title of a solicitor will be a solicitor of the Senior Courts of England and Wales, which sounds very grand. I always quite like it when I see that. So, there is a new breed of solicitor that you may not be aware of called a freelance solicitor. And this came about in November of 2019. It's a drive by the Solicitors Regulation Authority to broaden out the different ways in which people can work. And The definitions that I discussed with you a few moments ago go back to the Legal Services Act of 2007 in relation to who can be an advisor for the purposes of the settlement agreement. If somebody chooses to work in this new way, they're going to fall outside of the current legislation and wouldn't qualify as a relevant advisor. They've all, they're also subject to different rules on insurance, so they won't meet the insurance condition that I spoke to you about either. Going forward, I think this is gonna be quite confusing for employers. You're gonna to need to check the identity of the advisor who is advising the employee and make sure they do actually have a solicitor's regulation authority firm number. Um, you can also go to the Law Society. I've got a find a solicitor function. You can research any person um, on their website who is holding themselves out as a solicitor to understand their status and determine whether or not they are somebody who can be um, a qualifying advisor for these purposes. Hope that makes sense. Whilst we're talking about the advisor, and I'll, I'll talk in terms of solicitor because that's who it does tend to be more often than not. Um, what what are their role? What's their role in advising on the settlement agreement? The requirement in the legislation is for the employee to receive advice on the terms and the effects of the proposed agreement. On the face of it, that doesn't actually require the solicitor to 
talk about whether the deal on offer is a good one or whether or not they think the employee should accept it. It is it's quite a factual explanation job, if you like, and that there is case law that that confirms that's that's the case. Um, and I certainly, you know, have cases where um, I think the employee's got very strong claims um, on in the legal sense to something but they don't um, want to do that. My job is to emphasise to them that once they've signed the document, they'll no longer be able to bring those claims. However, I think it's unrealistic to expect anyone to confine their role to just the terms and effects of the proposed agreement. Often the employee is getting in touch with the advisor prior to the settlement agreement coming in, into creation. Um, they are perhaps facing performance management action or um, are subject to disciplinary or whatever the circumstances might be. Um, and they want some advice from the solicitor as to what happens next. Uh, and often that solicitor may be talking to them about whether it's possible to settle the situation using a settlement agreement. Um, they will then need a lot of hand-holding throughout whatever the steps are to get them from where they are at that point to the settle to settlement agreement being agreed in terms of the heads of terms of that agreement and what's contained in it. And then, of course, the the detail of the drafting of it as well. And um, typically this solicitor will be with the person um, every step of the way along that process. That brings us to the question of legal fees. Now, it's kind of the etiquette really that often it's the employer who has driven the employee into the arms of the solicitor um, by dint of suggesting a settlement agreement. So the etiquette has typically been that the employer will pay a contribution towards legal fees. There's often an argument about how much that should be. Um, 250 quid was the going rate for a long time. 250 quid was the going rate in the year 2000 when I qualified. 2000, sorry, 250 quid will not um, be sufficient these days, neither will 350 quid. Um, recent case of Solomon and the University of Hertfordshire in 2019 went to the Employment Appeal Tribunal where uh, one of the judges commented that um, £500 plus VAT was a completely unrealistic expectation on the part of the employer to um, have expected somebody to be able to get, get proper legal advice about something that you know is often from the employee's perspective really quite complex and I can confirm that uh, my average legal fees now I would say for the amount of time spent is probably 900 plus VAT that's on the basis of me looking back over the last three years at every file I've acted on um, to give you the, give you an idea. Um, if I try and categorise what happens when you're acting for an employee, this will give you an idea as to why it, it, it's much more complicated than 
just explaining to them what uh, the, the effect of the settlement agreement is, which can obviously be done fairly straightforwardly. Um, I, I myself use a video that I've prepared for people that does that. Sometimes people do have an explanation in writing that they give to their clients. But quite often we're dealing with people who are in an emotionally quite challenging position with the thought of their employment coming to an end. And they might be in a very um, different place to the employer in terms of uh, recognising that their employment is coming to an end. So part of my role um, I would liken to counselling and uh, sort of emotional support really and explaining to employees um, where they're at and giving them the support that they need to get them to the right mental place where they will be accepting that their employment is coming to an end. I can tell you now that um, it doesn't matter how many times I say to an employee, I will be in touch with you when I've heard from the employer. It does not stop them from ringing me every 10 minutes to find out if I've, I've heard from you um, or uh, sending me 20 emails when really one would have done. Quite often employees will receive the explanation that I've made about uh, a settlement agreement. Um, they'll often then think about what I've said and come back with questions um, which involve me having to explain again something that I've already told them. Um, people don't necessarily take on board information straight away. Um, people don't always read things properly. Um, people naturally have lots and lots of concerns when they are finding themselves losing their job um, and they worry about things and they wake up at four o'clock in the morning worrying about it and will be sending me emails at that point um, with the queries even though it's something we probably discussed yesterday. So it is very time intensive dealing with um, employees who are signing settlement agreements unless you're talking about somebody who's you know a senior exec who knows exactly what's what and um, uh, have perhaps been involved in these things from the other side and, and, and get everything but even then quite often because it's their own personal position they've got lots of concerns that they need to talk about. In terms of the scope of the settlement agreement over the years, there's been lots of discussion about what needs to be referred to in terms of what we are settling. To what extent do we just have a blanket, every claim we can think of kind of label, or do we need to set out in detail what all the complaints are that we are settling? And... Back in 2005, the case of Hinton versus the University of East London told us that the agreement has to relate to particular proceedings and it's got to expressly state the claim being settled. That's why we tend to have a long list of all the different claims that we are thinking we've got in mind when we're entering into one of these 
documents. That case actually suggested that we tailor the circumstances to the individual case. I see a mixed practice on that. Um, I'll hold my hand up and say my own precedent is perhaps guilty of not doing that sufficiently just because we want to be careful that we're covering every claim that might possibly exist and as soon as you start taking things out then there's obviously a danger that we miss something. In terms of future claims it's been confirmed in the case law that you can't compromise future claims. That doesn't stop us trying to do it though. I've got to say, if you look at most agreements, they'll talk about cases that you're aware of and, and things that you're not aware of as well. You can waive claims relating to pension rights, provided the wording is sufficiently clear. Um, but often that tends to be a carve out that if somebody has got claims relating to accrued pension rights, we will not be asking them to sign that away. It is possible to waive claims in relation to personal injury claims as well, but the um, convention that's grown up tends to be that we'll ask people to sign away claims that they are aware of. And then we will not ask them to sign away claims that they cannot yet be aware of. And that tends to be an exclusion in the agreement as well. There are certain claims that you can't settle. So failure to inform and consult with protective, uh, sorry, with appropriate representatives on a collective redundancy and under TUPE is not one that you can legally sign away but it is possible to draft warranties and things around that area in terms of other um, statutory requirements as I mentioned earlier you will see that list of legislation paragraph in a settlement agreement because that is necessary to make it a legally binding document. Other things that you cannot sign off would be claims from agency workers, rights to statutory maternity pay cannot be signed away for example same with adoption pay and paternity pay. Detriment under a zero hours contract. And you also technically cannot sign away claims under the data protection legislation. Although I've got to say, having seen a lot of these since 2018, I do often see employers trying to sign away claims under the data protection legislation. From the employee's perspective, once you leave, the employer's still got a hold of your data. So, for example, the employer could suffer a cyber attack and have the data comprom compromised like Carphone Warehouse did, for example. 
and the employee is going to need to be able to bring an action in respect of those issues so be aware of that when we're negotiating the agreement um, we'll often mark it without prejudice subject to contract and also subject to a protected conversation under section 111a of the employment rights act um, what we don't want is to send an open document to the employee or their solicitor until we have got a final document that we're happy to sign. So remember to mark um, any emails with those headings. Uh, on Friday last week, I was looking at a settlement agreement for an employee that I'm acting for, and HR had sent him a copy of the settlement agreement without marking it, any of those things. Um, that means it would potentially be something that could be dragged into an employment tribunal if he decided not to sign the agreement. So um, just be careful about that going forward. I'm sure you're all aware of the law around protected conversations something we've all become more familiar with in the last few years and that our conversations where we start talking to somebody about a settlement agreement uh, could be used as evidence in an employment tribunal if there is evidence of what is labelled improper behaviour and um, since we've had that legislation, um, more and more examples of what the judges regard as improper behaviour are starting to come out. So, for example, an employer who puts a lot of pressure on an employee to sign a settlement agreement quite quickly, um, you'll be aware that there is um, the uh, suggestion in the ACAS Code of Practice around settlement agreements that an employee should be given 10 days to consider an offer that's made. There have been examples of employers giving people much shorter periods of time and the judges saying that they regard that as improper behaviour. Improper behaviour will also be things like bullying and harassment, um, threats. Um, so if somebody was given a settlement agreement in a context where they were being threatened that they would um, for example be dismissed without any payment of anything um, unless of course they'd committed gross misconduct then that may well be improper behaviour also indicating the outcome of any alternative procedure would be dismissal um, could be improper behaviour as well so be very careful around the language that you're using Give you some examples now from the case law on, on improper behaviour. The first one, the case of Garney, um, there the employee had been given a written warning by one of the owners of the business who had um, 
raised the prospect of reporting to the border agency that the employee was on uh, subject to disciplinary because uh, she was here under a T2, uh, tier two visa. And uh, during the appeal against the warning that had been received, the appeal officer that was dealing with the issue was the original um, manager's husband and co-owner of the business. Um, the employee uh, recorded the uh, conversation that happened with that person. And during the conversation that took place, the uh, husband um, chastised, if you like, the employee for having sought trade union representation and made comments that it was going to be difficult for him to stay working for them in the light of that action. Um, he kept talking about he wanted that person sacked, um, that it was probable that dismissal was going to follow, um, and that entering into the settlement agreement, if you like, was the only way through through this. Um, the judge felt that this wasn't a negotiation of any kind but it really had been presented as an ultimatum and that it had been bullying and intimidation so it shows it's really important that um, line managers in particular understand the importance of the kind of language that they use in these conversations um, particularly as employees often don't hear the full conversation um that's why we often want to write and explain what we've been talking about another example um was uh, a senior executive um was taken into a meeting with the chairman of the business um, and asked whether or not he wished to resign when the executive said he didn't then the chairman indicated that the company had lost uh, or the board of the company had lost confidence in that person and there wouldn't be a job for them to come back to on Monday um, that they wanted to end his employment in a constructive manner um, and that was found to have been putting undue pressure on them that um, you know two days later there wasn't going to be a job for them unless they signed into the settlement agreement so again um we've got to be really careful around the timing of things and although it it can be very difficult to wait 10 days because we want to be able to say things to customers we want to be able to say things to colleagues um we don't know what somebody's going to be doing we really ought to be giving them that 10 day period to um make up their minds one of the things that I quite often do is um, ask the employee during the 10 days to give us an indication of how they're thinking. You know, are you minded to go down this route? Um, let us know uh, because that often shortens the period. Um, it's interesting when you're acting for the employee here, sometimes people will um, take longer than others to, I guess, get their mental ducks in a line. Some people want to act very quickly. 
um, just want it all over, just want it all sorted. Other people, it does genuinely take them 10 days to get their heads in the right space. So um, just remember that and be careful not to nag them from the HR side. I'm sure you are all familiar with conducting protected conversations and having plan B up your sleeve um, to fall back on. But it's amazing how often I see employers who haven't really thought about what plan B is. Um, and if necessary, I like to actually start plan B. So for example, with redundancy um, settlement agreements, quite often I will um, start the consultation process start doing all the things that the employer would do if there wasn't going to be a settlement agreement in place um, and start talking about a settlement agreement later on um, just because it puts the employer in so much of a stronger position when it comes to negotiating that settlement agreement. Um, when you go straight for the settlement agreement, it just gives the employee the ability to argue that minds are made up. Um, they, you know, should be entitled to more money etc so um bear that in mind i've also had a recent example where um the employment tribunal claim form just referred lock stock and barrel to what had been discussed in a protected conversation um even though my response to the defence was going to be um, none of these things should be taken into account because that formed a protected conversation and that isn't something the judge can see. Of course, by the time we've written all that down, the judge has read it. Um, how do you stop the judge unknowing what they've just read? Um, the other thing, of course, about protected conversations is that if there's an element of discrimination involved. So I've got a case on my desk at the moment that the person is arguing selection for redundancy um, was sex discrimination. The protected conversation does become something that the judge will look at. In terms of the settlement agreement clauses themselves, what things will we typically want to have in the document? Well, we want to make it clear what the termination date is going to be. Um, if that is a long way off, we may well need to get the document signed more than once. I'll come on to reaffirmation in a little while. Um, we're going to want to deal with payment up to that termination date. From an employee perspective, you're going to want to make sure that it covers off not only your salary, but also all other benefits, pension, etc. There might need to be discussion around payment of expenses. There might be loans that the employees taken from the employer that need to be repaid back. That might be repayment of training fees to think about. We might need to think about payment in lieu of holiday. One of the mistakes I quite often see is employers rolling up holiday into what they think can be a tax-free payment. HMRC are unlikely to accept that because, of course, payment in lieu of holiday should be taxed. Same goes for payment in lieu of notice. We've all had to get used to the idea of post-employment notice payments in the last few years. And 
even this week I've seen a settlement agreement that just, just doesn't work from a tax perspective there, um, where the employer was proposing to just pay the employee one lump sum tax-free. I've had to go back and explain that the one month's notice that that employee would have been entitled to is going to have to form a separate part of the agreement and provision for tax on that is going to have to be made. And that's the case now, whether or not we've got a contract of employment, whether or not we've got a pay in lieu of notice clause in the contract, HMRCs are going to expect the equivalent of notice pay to be taxed in all circumstances. The agreement might need to deal with what the employee is going to do pending the termination date. So that might be them going on garden leave. It might be them finishing a handover. It might be them carrying on and working as normal and finishing off a few things. We are likely to be negotiating some kind of payment um, in terms of uh, compensation. Uh, we are likely to be arguing about certain benefits that might be pension payments but it might be health insurance it might be car allowance it may be bonus that is uh, a big issue um bonus is an interesting one because i see a lot of employers trying to claim that bonus is non-contractual when it clearly is contractual if you have set out in writing to an employee that they will get a bonus in certain circumstances and those circumstances have occurred then that is a contractual bonus and the employer shouldn't be wriggling out of trying to pay it. Um, if you've got a large gap between now when an agreement is being reached and the termination date in the future there is a possibility that HMRC would view any payment that's made as um, being fully taxable, if you like, a garden leave payment. Um, this is um, where there's a possibility, I think, for um, future litigation to come as more and more employers are putting longer dates into their settlement agreements. Quite often we want to deal with restrictive covenants. Um, the employer may have already put them in the contract of employment, in which case the employee is just going to be reaffirming them in the settlement agreement, but it may be adding completely fresh covenants in. If that's the case, then we're going to want to have some consideration or payment against that covenant to prevent other payments in the agreement becoming taxable. Same with confidentiality. Um, we may want to control an announcement that's being made. We may want to make sure that neither party are going to make derogatory comments about each other. We might need to talk about the agreement being the only agreement between the parties. That's what the entire agreement provision relates to. Um, important from the employer that if there is other documentation such as an intellectual property deed that the employee has signed up to, or um, documentation covering share options or things like that, that we do cover off all the documentation in the, in the settlement agreement and cross-refer to it. This is, again, another reason why you can't just wheel out the one you did earlier. 
If the employee is being made redundant, we might need to refer to their statutory redundancy pay calculation. This is because uh, by law, they are entitled to have that calculation in writing. Uh, they may well want a letter that they can use for things like triggering insurance, um, getting training grants from the government, etc. And we're probably going to want the document to make it clear what law is governing it, i.e. the law of England and Wales. We are probably going to want to deal with property uh, and the return of property. Sometimes we agree the employee can keep certain property. Employers often agree that they can keep a laptop, for example, subject to IT cleansing the laptop of company software um, and data. If that's the case, there will be a benefit to that. There will be a benefit in kind. There will be tax implications of the employee having receipt of that. These days, I think it's really important that employers do deal with outplacement consultancy for people, not just when there's been a redundancy, but quite often if it's come to an employee as a major shock that, I don't know, they've been told their performance isn't up to scratch, they can be in quite a difficult place mentally and I think it's really important to put some support in place for them to pick them up and uh, help them move forward and find alternative employment and decent employers will be making provision for that. We've talked about the contribution to legal fees, um, there's probably going to be a long list of waiver of claims in the document possibly a withdrawal of an ET claim if one has been made. From the employer's perspective, they're going to want to make sure that if HMRC did decide that any tax-free money that we've paid up to 30000 is um, found to be taxable, that we've got the ability to go after the employee in respect of that. Although I've got to say um, quite whether the, that clause is as valuable as employers think it is, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Um, the employee's likely to turn around in the future and say they haven't got any money, it'll probably cost us just as much to um, pursue them. We want to deal with um, often a warranty that the employee hasn't got another job. Um, this is because it might affect the amount the employer is willing to pay. No employer wants to pay a large sum of money to somebody to discover that they've walked into a job somewhere else immediately and potentially mitigated their losses. We may also need a warranty that they haven't done anything that would breach the contract of employment. The last thing the employer wants to do is pay a lot of money to somebody to then discover that they could have potentially sacked that person for free if they'd known, I don't know, they'd been fiddling their expenses or something. We've talked about references. Often the employee is going to want to see the actual wording of the reference. And we might need to deal with things like resignation as a director. In terms of confidentiality, the employer is going to be worried about the precedent setting quality of having paid somebody a certain amount of money. They're not going to want other employees to know what deals they've struck. So they're not going to want that person talking to their mates down the pub about it.
so that the next time they have a falling out with somebody, that employee refers back to this particular deal. From the employee's perspective, they need to be free to say how their employment has ended. And that often gives them cause for concern. What can I say to my future employer? How am I going to present what's happened to me? We need to be really careful, though, about gagging clauses. There are restrictions in the public sector on this already, but in the light of the Harvey Weinstein um, investigation and um, the evidence that was given to the Equalities Commission and Parliament, there's new guidance that's been issued by the Solicitors Regulation Authority on non-disclosure agreements. And it needs to be made clear in agreements that employees can still very much whistleblow if they need to. They can take medical advice and discuss what's happened with, for example, counsellors if they choose to go down that route. That they can report anything of relevance to a regulator of an organisation and they can still take things to the police. This is unlikely to be in any old agreements that you might be recycling, so you do need to think about that and make it very clear to management that you're not going to be able to gag employees from doing those things. And, you know, for example, speaking to your regulator might be a really, really important issue. From the employee's perspective, the reason that's given for termination of employment is significant to them. Mutual agreement might not work um, because they're unlikely to be able to claim benefits if it's seen that they have voluntarily left their employment. Um, they're going to want to see all um, of the benefits that they normally get being paid in lieu, not just salary, unless of course you've got it in the contract of employment that Upon a payment in lieu, it is only basic salary allowed. Pension might be something where they can make some tax efficiencies. Uh, if they can forego some of the payment by having it paid into their pension instead, if they can afford to do that, that reduces um, potential tax to them and can be very beneficial. So employers should be happy to facilitate that because it's no skin off your nose, it's still costing you the same amount of money. In terms of the tax-free amount that I mentioned earlier of 30000 it's really important to understand that that's only available if no other um, tax provision bites. So the way HMRC are going to look at it is they're going to want to check whether or not um, tax applies they can find any other reason to make it taxable. That's one of the reasons why, we, why we've got to be really careful about retirement and not referring to retirement all the time um, for people because that could be viewed as an unapproved retirement scheme and taxable. Um, so, for example, an, an announcement may want to avoid referring to um, retirement. From an employee's perspective, they might 
be worried about um, a guarantor for payment. Sometimes they want group companies to guarantee that a particular employer is going to pay them. They might be worried about references that oral references will be given in the same spirit as the written reference that's agreed. They may only be willing to make the waiver of claims once they've been paid. They may want to have that clarity, as I mentioned earlier, about what they can say to other employers. We need to, from the employer's perspective, um, be very careful around maternity and parental rights. Um, as I said earlier, you can't sign them away. There is a possibility that if the employer has not calculated statutory maternity pay correctly, for example, that the employee can still go back in relation to that. Pay rises being the classic example because it would affect the 90% pay that's been paid for the first six weeks of leave. And that is something that would continue. Um, so just be aware of that when you're entering into settlement agreements for those who've perhaps been on maternity leave. Coming on to some of the things that I see all the time, um, be really careful about the ACAS precedent settlement agreement. Um, it's really basic. It's really poorly drafted from a tax perspective. Um, it doesn't contain all the things which, as an employer, you might want to have in them. So um, just be aware of that um, and basically use your own, don't use theirs. Um, I talked about reaffirmation earlier. Reaffirmation is an idea that's become more and more common in the last few years being where the employer is asking somebody to sign a settlement agreement now and then sign a second version of the settlement agreement later on because of course fresh claims could have arised between the first date and the second date. Um, if you're advising the employee of course that means two lots of work and further expense so um, any employee is going to want their employer to pay at least £150 for the second agreement. Um, it does mean you're going to need to be quite careful about the drafting of the agreement to make sure that you are only signing away um, the genuine claims up until the first date on the first signing etc. Other things that are happening, um, in April 2020, national insurance will kick in on redundancy payments over 30,000. Up until now, national insurance has not applied if it's been a redundancy payment, um, but it will kick in over the 30,000 from April the 6th. I think that probably brings us to the end of this podcast. It's been slightly unusual. Um, not being able to meet with everyone and take questions face to face if anyone has got anything that they would like to ask please do email me um i apologize if you can hear snoring dogs um because they refuse to stay outside the room they would just scratch the door and want to be in here but then they've 
sat here um, whilst I've been recording this and I can hear one of them definitely heavy breathing so I do apologise for that and I look forward to um, speaking to you all in the next episode. I'm thinking that this is going to be on immigration issues so if anyone's got any particular immigration relation queries that they want to discuss then please do let me know.